Hear now the reading of the word of Almighty God inspired by his spirit and profitable for us. The second epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Corinthians or the churches of Achaia. Verse one, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints, which are in all Achaia. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble, by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. For we write none other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge, and I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end. As also ye have acknowledged us in part that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence I was minded to come unto you before, that ye might have a second benefit. And it came to pass, and to pass by you into Macedonia, and to come again out of Macedonia unto you, and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. When I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness? Or the things that I purpose do I purpose according to the flesh, that with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Now, 
he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that despair you I came not as yet unto Corinth. Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. Thus far the reading of God's holy word from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. First, in verses 1 and 2, we have the introduction. Notice Paul is not self-appointed. It was by God's will, he says. He writes, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are in all Achaia. Now, Achaia would be somewhat like if we said Virginia. And Corinth, being the principal city of Achaia, would be something like Richmond. That would be the principal city to all the saints that are at Richmond with all of them throughout all of Virginia. That's kind of a comparable statement. And this is important for a couple of reasons. The church is the same audience as 1 Corinthians. So we have to think this through. This, he says in chapter 2, verse 3, is the second letter he's written to them, to both the church at Corinth and to the saints of Achaia. And this is a, a typical figure of speech in the Bible, where the city Corinth, the principal city, stands for the whole region of Achaia. This is done in various contexts where one major thing stands for everything. Okay, so that's one way. Sometimes in the Bible it'll say all Israel gathered together. And what that means is all of the elders of Israel gathered together as their representatives. As the principal men of Israel, they gathered together. All Israel gathered together, therefore, in them. So here, Corinth being one city, a principal city, was, you might say, the representative of a regional church. And this is very important. There are local churches, like this one here, a congregation that meets regularly for worship and discipline. But there are also regional churches or broader churches. We call this presbyteries. Then there are councils or synods or general assemblies of even more presbyteries that meet together to govern together under Christ our Lord. And the New Testament is filled with this kind of thing. Tens of thousands of disciples there in Jerusalem are called one church, the church at Jerusalem. But how many congregations do you suppose they had? Well, they didn't meet publicly. They were persecuted. It says they met from house to house. And how many pastors did they have at that church? Well, there must have been at least the 12 apostles then you would also have other ministers that they mention who are dispersed out. Then you would have had the deacons. But they're all considered to be one church, even though it's a collection of multiple churches. So here in Corinth, it was not merely to one local church. It was to a regional church of Achaia. He wishes, wishes this church grace to them and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll also see this in Romans 6:17. God is the sovereign source of both grace and peace for Christians. We don't come up with the grace of faith ourselves. God is the source of it. And so he wishes it from God, not from themselves. Verses 3 through 11, we have the apostle's troubles, his thanks to God for those troubles, and the benefit of God's comfort to the Corinthians. He calls God the God of all comfort in verse 3. God who helps, who comes near and draws near to those who are downtrodden. He's the author of comfort. 
he says he comforts us in all our tribulation. And tribulation is when the wheel of affliction comes down and crushes us. Then God comes near and helps us. That's the idea. And then that help we receive from God, he says, we're to give to others, verse 4, that we may be able to comfort them that are in any trouble. This is part of God's purpose. God has designed that his people are to be conduits of his grace. He's the source of it, but he chooses to work through us. Has God forgiven us? Then we ought to forgive others. Has God comforted us? Then we ought to comfort others. Has God taught us? Then we ought to teach others. That's the idea. God intended for Abraham to be a blessing to the nations of the earth, right? He was going to bless Abraham so that he could be a blessing. And that's what God calls us to. Let us not see the grace or the comfort that we receive as terminating upon ourselves. Oh, I am in such anguish and bitterness. I just want comfort to come to me. Well, God says, no, I have a design. Yes, I will comfort you. But I want you to give that to others who are in any trouble. Let us not see it as terminating with us, but terminating on his people. Notice verse 6, whether the apostle was afflicted or whether he was comforted, it was still to the same end, to the consolation and salvation of the Corinthians. So God works all things together for the good of his people. Whether we are abounding, Paul says, or whether we're abased, whether we're full or whether we're empty, whether we are in success or whether in failure, God has a design for all those for our salvation and the good of his people. Let us then take heart at God's providence. If God is for us, who can be against us? This is how the scriptures can say, rejoice in all things, not in all the good things, but in all things, because God has a purpose for our good. He refers to his troubles in Asia, verse 8. Now he's telling them why he didn't come to visit them. There are several reasons. We'll get into more in chapter 2. Some people said, well, Paul didn't come because he's afraid of you. Paul didn't come because he doesn't care about you. These are various accusations. Or he's wishy-washy. He says one thing and does another. So Paul gives an apologetic. Here's why I didn't come to you. Here's one reason. He had trouble in Asia. Remember the riot? And I was referring to the statue that fell out from Jupiter and the silversmiths made a lot of money. That was part of the troubles that Paul had when he was in Asia. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to leave him for dead. He says he wrestled with wild beasts at Ephesus in 1 Corinthians 15.32. We also saw last week, 1 Corinthians 6.9, a great door and effectual was opened unto him, but he had many adversaries. Now, God brought Paul near to the point of death in those instances. Why? Verse 9 tells us. So that he should not trust in himself but in God, which raiseth the dead. If you've ever been close to death, you start to reprioritize your life. You start to think again about, well, what's actually important in my life? And Paul realized that. I can die at any moment. Why then should I trust in myself? It's God who raises the dead. It's God who keeps me alive. Therefore, my trust and confidence is in him. Diodati comments on this. He says that God intends to teach us to renounce all manner of presuming upon themselves, to put no manner of confidence in human means, and to repose all their trust and belief in God alone. 
Should we use human means? Yes. Should we trust in those means? No. We trust in God. They helped him with their prayers. They prayed on his behalf. That's one of the means that God used to deliver Paul. Verses 12 through 24, we have the vindication of Paul and his fellow laborers, their integrity in clearing himself. They charged him, as I mentioned, with being light. You know what a light person is? Levitas. It's where a person is not sober. They're not grounded. You can't trust the words that they say because they'll tell you one thing and they'll do something else. Oh, sure, I'll be there. I'll help you out. Do they show up when they said they would? Because if not, they're light. So, Paul, you said you were going to visit us. Why aren't you here yet? Because you're a light person, Paul. We can't rely on you. That's what the false apostles were saying. So he says, no, my conscience tells me that you're wrong. My rejoicing, he says, is this the testimony of our conscience? If my conscience condemned me as a light person, I would know about it. But I have no such condemnation. So he shows that he had no conscience because he engaged in simplicity and godly sincerity. Now, this word simplicity means that you don't have to guess which part of the person you're dealing with. You're dealing with the person who's speaking to you. What you see is what you get, in other words. If Paul said something, he was sincere. He had integrity, pure motivations. Then this word sincerity means literally in both the Greek and the Latin, to be without wax. So you would have a pot that got busted or not made well, and they would put wax over it so that you couldn't see that it got busted or wasn't made well. But if you held that pottery up to the sun, which is literally the word used here, you would judge it by the sun. Ah, see, I, I see your cracks here. You're not sincere. You sell yourself as high-quality pottery, but you're trash. Why do you want to charge me more? And then they'd bicker in the marketplace. They would haggle with each other, right? Sincerity means what you see is what you get. Your motives are pure. Remember the bread that is unleavened, right? That's a sincere bread. It's not trying to make you think there's more bread by putting leaven in it. They would sell it based off of nutrients. I want to know how much nutrients I get in the bread. If it's this big and I get this much nutrients, that's no good deal. You're trying to deceive me. Paul says, I'm not like that. I have godly sincerity. Before God, I walk in honesty with pure intentions, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Now, fleshly wisdom teaches you, make it look good, even though it's not. Cover it up with wax and sell it at a high price. That's fleshly wisdom. Deceive other people. Pretend to be something that you are not. Be a hypocrite, because after all, if you fail, you're too big to fail. So what will happen if you and your great position fall? Well, then everybody will think ill of God. Well, let the chips fall where they may. We must not be hypocrites. We must not be fleshly in our wisdom. We must strive for a good conscience. We must use simplicity. I've seen many men, even ministers of the gospel, who lie their heads off because they think it's glorifying to God. They say things they don't mean. Why? Because they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Oh, those precious feelings don't hurt them. Well, just tell the truth. Let the chips fall where they may. Not all the truth, but the truth that's pertinent to the situation. That is godly simplicity. 
Don't lie and say, well, I'm glorifying God with my political machinations. I'm going to get people to do what I want. And after all, doesn't it glorify God that I get what I want? No. It glorifies God when we do our duty and leave the results to him. Notice verse 13. He says that they read or acknowledge the things that he writes unto them. And he trusted that they would acknowledge his writing to them all the way till the end. The church has a rule of faith. It's known as the scriptures. And he says, I trust that you'll acknowledge nothing else. You have the prophets. You have the apostles. Take those to the bank. Keep them to the end. Don't forsake them for some other ungodly wisdom. Paul says, verse 15, he was minded to come unto them. He had a purpose to visit with them. Providence made it impossible. He could not fulfill, and this became a ground of accusation. He couldn't fulfill that purpose. Ah, see, Paul's not serious. He doesn't mean it. He doesn't care. He says one thing, yay, and then it's nay. Yeah, I'll show up. No, he doesn't show up. He asks them, did I use lightness? Levity, literally something that is light in weight, but also something that lacks stability, regularity, irregular in your conduct. You vacillate between two opinions. How long halt ye between two opinions? Fickleness, lightness, that's the idea here. Can't nail the guy down. Can't figure out what he really believes, how he's really going to live. Not sure he'll show up when he says he'll show up. That's Paul. He said he would show up and he didn't. And then he asks them, the things that I purpose, verse 18, do I purpose according to the flesh? Do I intend, in other words, to use this worldly wisdom where I cover up the fault line with wax? You can't really tell what I'm all about. Is that how Paul was? Was he like the modern pastors who just want everybody to be happy so they'll tell them what they think that person wants to hear, not what's actually the case? Okay, how do I get you off my back? Well, I'm going to tell you what I think will make you happy. Do I mean that thing? Well, maybe I do, maybe I don't, but at least you're happy. At least I've made you feel good inside. And then I stabbed you in the back. That's the idea. Paul's not of that sort. He didn't use worldly or fleshly purposes and decisions. He was a grave man. He had a purpose in his mind, but he submitted it to providence And yet we have a moral responsibility. We must make resolutions and we must keep resolutions. That's required of us. Otherwise, we are light persons. Stonewall Jackson said, Resolve to perform what you ought. Perform without fail what you resolve. Let us then be a people, whether men or women, boys or girls, be a man, a woman, a boy or a girl of your word. Resolve to do your duty to God, to your neighbor, or even to your enemies. When you fail, sincerely repent. Hold yourself responsible rather than saying, Oh, but I have this excuse. Have me excused. I can't do what I say. Now, there are times God's providence overcomes, and that's fine. God's providence can prevent you, but let it not be your lack of resolution, your levity, your fickleness that keeps you from doing what you said. That's what Paul's saying. 
It was not levity or fickleness. It was not lack of resolution. It was lack of God's providence concurring with my purposes. That's it. Notice, though, the encouragement. Even as we are to be conduits of comfort, so we are to be conduits of keeping our word. Verse 20, for all the promises of God in Christ, that is, in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. Just as God makes promises and purposes and keeps them, so we are to do likewise. That's what he's saying. That's his argument here. But notice incidentally what he says about all the promises. Where are those promises written, Paul? Where are all the promises of God? Do they start at Matthew 1.1? Is that where the promises of God start? No. In fact, if you read Matthew 1.1 or you read the Gospel of Luke, you find out that Jesus' coming is in fulfillment of the promises made to whom? The Father's. The promise God made to Abraham. The promise to Moses. The promise to David. God made promise after promise after promise. And when Christ showed up on the scene, he didn't say, all those promises are trash. Because you know what? The Old Testament was all about the land. It all had to do with carnal promises, carnal hopes of that people in that place at that time. And that's it. All you got are spiritual promises. Is that what God says? No. Every single promise God has ever made are fulfilled in Christ and are therefore relied upon by us. That's what he's saying. Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for their learning? No, he says, our learning. So that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. We are whole Bible Christians. There is no such thing as a New Testament Christian because as soon as you read the New Testament, it says, what are you doing here, dummy? Go read the Old Testament. This is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, that's Genesis and that's First and Second Samuel. Go back and read your Bible. The promises of God are yea and amen in Jesus Christ, including those promises that say, I will be God to you and to your children. Paul then calls God for a record upon his soul. That's an oath. Contrary to some who say you cannot take oaths, Paul swears under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're going to say that's sin. We're going to say that's ungodly. We are ungodly if we say so. Verse 23, he says, here's why I didn't come. Here's another reason. To spare you, I came not as yet. Remember, Paul wrote them a letter, excommunicate the fornicator, right? And if you don't, I will come to you with a rod, and which would you prefer? Shall I come with a rod to discipline you, or shall I come in love and a spirit of meekness? He asked this at the end of 1 Corinthians. So he wrote the first letter. If he came right after it and they hadn't fixed it, he would have to come and spank them. That's the idea of sparing. It's when you have the rod... And you have the child, and the crime has been committed and proven, and now you have to do the deed to correct them. He did not want to do that. He wanted to let it resolve itself. You received my first letter. I'm going to send Titus. He'll tell me whether you repented. And in fact, we'll see they did. We'll see this in the succeeding chapters of 2 Corinthians. I did not come out of, uh, or I, I did not refuse to come out of lightness, but in order that I wouldn't have to crush you. I wouldn't have to spank you, in other words. 
I came not to spare you, he says. He was patient, and he trusted that God and his providence would be working in them. And then verse 24, not that he had dominion over their faith. They were not lords of the flock. They were ministers of Christ. Now think about this for a moment. If they were not lords of the flock of Christ, how much less lesser ministers, such as myself, lesser than the apostles? Am I a lord of your faith? No. Is there any other mere post-apostolic authority who can say, I'm a lord of the congregation, I am the king of the church on earth? Is that actually how the apostles behaved? Not at all. They had no lordship over the faith of God's people, but rather they were helpers of their joy. Church discipline does not make the elders the lords over someone's faith, not at all. The point of church discipline in its negative portion is to recall the offender to what? Come back to the Lord. Turn from your sins. Turn from fornicating with your father's wife in this case. Receive the instruction of God. Turn from your sins and come back to the fellowship of the church. Some said, according to David Dixon, Thou makest thyself Lord of our faith, as if thou couldst punish when thou wouldest. Paul, you're not coming but you could have come and punished us so you think you're Lord over us or something? That's the idea. He answers by denying any mastery, affirming the power of his ministry, and that to be employed to the benefit of the church, that timely censures according to the will of Christ being used, those that repented might at length rejoice. We give them over to Satan, Paul says, for the salvation of the Spirit, though their flesh would be destroyed. That's the idea, to recover the offenders so that they might rejoice in the end, helpers then of their joy. And thus far the explanation of 2 Corinthians chapter 1.